But I have to remind myself and I, or myself, and I want to say to you today that in truth, we, we are not living in the most sinful generation. We are living in the continued sinful generation that has been part of human nature and culture since the fall in the garden. And I would suggest to you that Noah found it just as difficult to live for God in his generation as we do. I would suggest that Daniel faced the same kind of trials and difficulties and the three Hebrew children did that we face this day. Uh, we could go up to Daniel in his time, not only Daniel, but Paul under Nero. And, and so uh, let's quit telling ourselves that these are the worst and this is the hardest and nobody can stand for the Lord, not so. But I also want you to understand this, that I believe perhaps more going forward than we have experienced in our culture in the United States, that we will be faced with what I will call choices in the moment of crisis when we make a decision about Christ or culture. What is going to guide us? What is going to motivate us? Is it going to be our stand for the Lord and our ministry for the Lord, or are we going to buckle under to culture? And to try to illustrate what I'm talking about, I want to simply look at one moment in time when such a crisis occurs, and it is the trial of the Lord Jesus, and I want to look at how three men make decisions about who they're going to stand for, who they're going to honor, and why they make those choices. So I want you to see this morning, we'll read scripture in just a moment, I want you to see that Peter at this moment in his life concedes. He becomes a man of concession. I want you to see Pilate at this moment in his life, he becomes a man of consensus, and consensus is just a pretty word for compromise, okay? And then I want you to see a third man in this passage, and it is the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus is a man who illustrates for us what it is to stand in that moment of crisis by conviction. Notice with me in John chapter 18, and let's begin reading in verse 25. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? And he denied it, and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? And Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. Peter, the man of concession. We find Peter in that passage warming himself outside of the high priest's home at a fire built by those who are also gathered. Jesus is in the dungeon awaiting his time before the high priest and eventually before Pilate. It's been an incredible night where Peter has been exposed to be a man of very high emotion but not yet firm conviction. He had been moved, and earlier when the Lord Jesus had, had said that he was facing his passion, 
uh, Peter says to him, and I won't have you go there in Matthew 26, though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. A little later in that same conversation, Peter proclaims, though I should die with thee, yet I will not deny thee. And yet a few moments after that, in that passionate moment in the garden, when Jesus is seized and Peter pulls that broadsword and takes off the ear of Malchus, we expose, or has, he exposes himself as a man who is good at words, not so good at standing and doing what his words say. I see Peter, and I wonder, why did Peter make such, such important declarations that he would stand for the Lord and then so miserably fail in them? What made him concede? His emotions were right. His statements were, were wonderful. But what made him concede in those moments? Let me mention a few things. Number one, he had the wrong perspective of himself. We, as, as well, live in a culture that wants to make sure everyone is impressed with themselves. We see, want to see the good in ourselves. We want to love self. We want to believe in self. We want to be strong in self-esteem. And I'm not trying to cause anyone to have a crisis in their self-esteem, but can I remind us all of something? That without Christ, we are nothing. And though our world pushes us to be uh, uh, boastful of self, I, I, our social media tempts us to present such a false life. And then comes the test when we have to live up to that false life. And here's the truth. The greatest preacher in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, described himself as a chief of sinners, the least of the apostles, referred to himself as a wretched man. And our world would say, what's wrong with that guy? Where's his self-esteem? He'll never succeed with an attitude like that. And yet he did pretty well for himself because he recognized who he truly was, that without Christ, he was absolutely nothing in great need. When we think the work of God can be done with our intelligence, when we think the force of our personality or our gift of organization is what God needs, we will find ourselves failing and becoming people who concede and walk away. Now, I don't want to insult you, but I want you to hear something. You are not enough. You are not God's gift to ministry. You are not God's gift to the world. And if you don't establish in your life right now that anything you will accomplish in ministry, any success that you have in life will not be because of the force of your will or the strength of your personality or the glibness of your speech. It will be because the Holy Spirit possesses you and uses you and your lifetime passion ought to be filled to be filled filled with the Spirit of God. You desperately need Him. Peter also had a wrong perspective of the people to whom he conceded. As he stood before that fire, a fear gripped him. 
And the fear that gripped him was that he could be arrested for his part in what had taken place in the garden. Maybe his motivation was to avoid a beating or not to be thrown out of the synagogue. But the truth is, he overestimated who these people were and what these people could do. I don't mean to cast aspersions and and mean to say to you that, boy, had Mike Edwards been at that fire, he'd have stood. I don't know. But I know this, that you and I must always calculate in life that it is more important to have the, the, the acceptance of God and God's pleasing God in our life than it is to have the accolade or celebrity with man or the acceptance of man. And sometimes we have to face choices in our life where we are going to be mocked. We're going to be scorned. We might even suffer some physical consequences, but in the end, our eternal life is with God. Our soul is with God. And I know these are big uh, big thoughts and, and boastful words, but I'm saying to you that Peter got it confused. He thought the people that stood there and asked him the questions were more important than the God who observed his behavior. I'd say thirdly, he had the wrong perspective of Jesus. Jesus was not a defeated person. Jesus was living out the will of God. And in that moment, Peter, you could have taken the stand that those three Hebrew children did. You could have taken the stand that Daniel did. You could have taken the stand that Paul, we observe, takes over and over again in his ministry because in every instance where our life is hazarded, Jesus is enough and Jesus is strong enough to protect us. It's good to be passionate for Christ, even to be emotional in our worship, but it is essential to be grounded in Bible doctrine, to be connected through personal devotion, and to be convinced of an eternal perspective, lest we be men of concession when the dark clouds roll in. And I can assure you, in your place of ministry, at some point in your life, culture is going to call your name. And culture is going to test your resolve. And it will be seen whether you are just words, whether your values are placed in the right place, knowing that God is the author of good things in your life. And my friend, I pray that your walk of devotion and your your dependency upon God will allow you in those moments to not be the man of concession, but instead to stand and be a man of conviction. Quickly, would you notice with me the man of consensus or compromise? His name is Pilate. I wish I could read all of this. I'm not going to read all the passage. Let me read just some select verses. Uh, Notice in verse 28, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? Pilate was a man who stood in a very difficult place. In my opinion, Pilate is one of the saddest personalities of biblical history. And even more sad, I see his process of thinking on wide display in our world. 
Pilate is a man who stands between the truth of who Jesus is and the Roman culture that he is there to preserve. And Pilate is always a man who is trying to find some way to appease both. His job is to make peace between Jerusalem and Rome, to keep the peace between Jerusalem and Rome. And it was certainly a difficult task. You see, Pilate was a man who was unconvinced of spiritual truth because he was dominated by the sense of performing a secular job. He was thoroughly secular. He was convinced that power resided in the state and the force that it could bring upon a man's life was the ultimate force. Spiritual power was nothing. The power of the secular was everything. Our world is a world of relativism. It's a world where there is no absolute truth. And and so I refuse to have any restraint on my life. That's why we live in a world where there's this gender dysphoria. You're not allowed to impose your truth on me because my truth is my truth. And there is no ultimate spiritual truth. And dangerously, this process has entered the church. And as in Jeremiah, we too often live as penknife Christians. Jehudi, he would take the word of God and keep the parts he liked and cut out the parts that he didn't like. And Christians are accepting what we like, cutting out what we don't want to have to face as truth in the Word of God. And at some point, you're going to come to face uh, in, in your ministry with the thought of, if the Bible says it, do I stand for it? Though all of culture is against it, none of culture understands it. I heard someone the other day say this. It was ridiculous. He said, you know, in truth, baptism is just a metaphor for commitment. And as long as a person is committed, there's a lot of ways that they can express that other than baptism. That is thoroughly just bunk and junk. And yet I will guarantee you, we're facing that kind of world as we move forward. Pilate was a man committed to secular methodology. In Pilate's world, the end justified the means. He just wanted to get to a solution. His job was to keep peace between Rome and Jerusalem. Talk about two diametrically opposed perspectives. Rome committed to secular paganism. Jerusalem committed to zealous monotheism. How would you like to pastor a church like that? And here's the truth, you will. (laughs) The solution became more important than the truth. Can I say that again? The solution became more important than the truth. I wish I had time to stop and dwell on these things, but, you know, after 44 years of pastoral ministry, I'm just here to tell you that not everybody has a fundamental Baptist theological perspective. Not everybody has a biblical perspective. And and one of your callings and your jobs in ministry is going to be to teach the truth and explain the truth. But ultimately, I believe you'll be called on to stand for the truth. And there is an incredible pressure in our world today not to ask the question, is it biblical, but to ask the question, does it work? And I see men adapting ways that are, 
that are good solutions to get to an end, but they don't get to the end of biblical truth. And I think you need to prepare yourself that you can't be a pilot who stands up there and casts between uh, just trying to find a way out. Maybe, maybe I can deny them and I'm, I'm just going to tell them I, I don't see any fault in this guy. Well, that didn't work. Uh, maybe I can find a, a compromise of, I, I know what I can do. I can, I can kill Barabbas and offer them Jesus. He is casting about for a solution instead of standing for the truth. He asks, what is truth? And my friend, our world is asking, what is truth? One of the things you need to be developing in your life is to know the truth and develop the conviction to stand for the truth. I would say also to you, Pilate was ultimately concerned only for himself. He wanted a way out for himself. And I can just see him as he foolishly washed his hands and denied any responsibility for the blood of Jesus saying to himself, uh, it, it may not seem right to others, but it seems right to me, and, and I, I managed to keep the peace. You know, he rationalized what he did in selling out the Lord Jesus. And I read one time a man said, to rationalize is to convince ourselves of rational lies. And I would just urge you to be careful as you develop your ministry to know the truth and be committed to stand for the truth. Do not become a man of compromise and consensus. Last, I want you to notice Jesus, a man of conviction. Peter conceded. Pilate compromised as he sought consensus. But there's one man who stood for truth and displayed conviction. And his name was Jesus. Let me just offer you a few thoughts why Jesus was able to stand in the face of incredible suffering. Number one, he knew who he was as a person. Verse 33, Pilate says to him, Pilate entered the judgment hall again and called unto Jesus and said to him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee? He didn't give Pilate the concise answer that Pilate wanted, but make no mistake about it, Jesus did know he was king of the Jews. Jesus did know that he was king of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus did know that he was the Son of God incarnate. He did know that he was the Lamb without spot or blemish. He did know that he was the last Passover Lamb. He knew who he was, and knowing who he was allowed him to live up to what his Father had given him to do. I am not Jesus. You probably noticed that. But there are some things I know about myself. I know that in February of 1975, I became saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I know that in the same year, God called me to preach the gospel. I know that I am Nancy's husband, my children's father, and my grandchildren's papa. I know that I am a servant to the saved and a debtor to the lost of every color in every land of every creed. I know I am a servant. 
I know I am simply an under rower. No matter how many letters are before my name or degrees are after it, no matter where I stand, no matter how many people tell me I did good there or good there, I know what I am. And my sole job is to be an under rower and serve God where and when He calls me to serve. I know that I'm on my way to heaven and I'll be conformed to the image of my Savior. I know I will be known as I am. And I may not always know where I'm going. And at my age, I often forget where I've been. But I never am in doubt as to whose I am. I am God's. I want to tell you, to be able to be in a circumstance of difficulty facing men and to know that I belong to God is one of the most stabilizing forces you'll ever have in your life. Spend these years at West Coast defining yourself as who you are, child of God, called of God, servant of God. It'll help you be a man of conviction. I know also that Jesus knew his purpose. Look at verse 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king? Then Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. For this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Jesus was not conflicted over his mission. Even in the garden, as he looked into the cup filled with our sin, the perfect, sinless Son of God surrendered to the will of the Father for his own good. And even though he had been rejected by his own and betrayed by the ones who were closest to him, forsaken by those that he had served and had expressed love in suffered brutally unfair treatment at the hands of the civil authorities, been shamed in front of men and women. None of it could turn him from his purpose because he knew why he was here. One of the greatest blessings in my life was to know that God had called me and to know that God had led me to plant a church. Hey, I would say to people, I went to bed in the house that God has for me. I got up and went into the office that God gave to me. I pastor the church that I know God called me to start. And today, though I am not much, I know, I know, I know my purpose in this life. Do you? Let me conclude this. Jesus was a man of conviction because he knew God's promise to him. Yes, he knew that his way went through the cross and he knew his way went through rejection and suffering, but he also knew this. On the third day, I will rise. And so what if in these moments of affliction, light affliction, yes, it's difficult, yes, it's tough, but I know the end. And my friend, as you serve here at this point in your ministry, you spend these years purposing in your heart to know whose you are. And to know the purpose that God has given to you for your life. And then set forth in ministry, wherever he's called you, whatever he's called you to do, knowing the promise that he's made to you for your life. Fulfill it. Purpose in your heart to never be the man of concession. 
to never be the man of compromise consensus, but to be the man of conviction and to stand with God. Would you pray?